0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome
2: to this Impeachment Day edition of The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, it's December 18th of 2019 all over again, isn't it, as uh, House Democrats are... Democrat socialists are moving to impeach the president. Uh, The kicker this time is you've got uh, a handful. We'll see how many uh, House Republicans who are joining with them. President Trump uh, addressed the impeachment yesterday while uh, celebrating the 450th mile of border wall completed in Alamo, Texas, saying the following.
3: It's really a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. This impeachment is causing tremendous anger. And you're doing it, and it's really a terrible thing that they're doing. For Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to continue on this path, I think it's causing tremendous danger to our country, and it's causing tremendous anger. I want no violence. Thank you very much.
2: And in case you thought this was a serious proceeding, Eric Toots Swalwell, Chai Kam Matahari's boyfriend, was named by Nancy Pelosi as one of the House managers. I thought Byron York in his uh, Daily Memo had a nice summation on this over at the Washington Examiner. Democrats started trying to remove President from office before he entered office. Now they are proposing to remove him from office after he leaves office. And yeah, that's a fairly good, uh, fairly good comment on the last four years uh, of uh, of our politics in this nation. Uh, It's not to say that uh, Trump did anything wrong. It's to say that what Trump did doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense, number one. Number two, it's a question as to what exactly House Republicans like Liz Cheney and uh, perhaps Senate Republicans, including outgoing Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is reportedly 50-50 on whether to move forward with uh, voting to convict Trump if and when there is a trial in the Senate, what they think they're accomplishing by throwing in with Democrat socialists, even as a purge that extends well beyond President Trump and deep into Trump supporters in positions of social importance and status in business and other sectors, as well as just everyday Americans who are Trump supporters that purge ongoing and how that's the way forward for the Republican Party as one of the cliches we hear often cited by those who believe President Trump should be impeached. And at some point, uh, maybe uh, shortly after Joe Biden's inauguration, maybe 100 days after Joe Biden's inauguration, a trial should proceed. For more on this, particularly the purge part, we're pleased to be joined again by Joy Pullman. She's the executive editor of The Federalist, thefederalist.com. Joy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks for asking me. Uh, so, um, you know, a, a, again, uh, the difference between uh, this time and the last time back in December of 2019 that ultimately uh, ended with his acquittal uh, a couple of months into 2020, uh, you have uh, more pro- uh, Republicans of profile, and particularly in the House, excoriating the president and joining with the Democrat socialists saying this is the way to move the party forward. This is the way to end the party's association with President Trump as I think their gambit. Do you think that's how it's going to play out?
4: I really think what the gambit is for is for Democrats to divide the formerly United Republican Party in order to basically more efficiently carry out their uniparty control of the federal government. That really does not have a backing of the majority of American people. What you know we saw in the 2020 election was a lot of Americans were not voting for socialism that the Democrats were really running on in the extreme policies of packing the new uh, the Supreme Court, possibly adding more always Democrats quote unquote, states in the form of D.C. and Puerto Rico. Uh, Americans did not endorse that. Americans did not endorse that. What they really said was, "Look, you know, we're kind of tired of the never-ending insanity of our politics. Maybe if we get rid of Trump, (laughs) it will end." You know, so basically, that was a a vote for appeasement and just joining in with the never-ending culture war purges of just punishing people for their political views is really the result of both that choice as well as Republicans deciding to capitulate in the face of it.
2: Well, right, and you know, the question is what they think that's going to get. And I I asked that in the context of an interesting Rasmussen polling this week So after uh, all that transpired on Wednesday and the deplatforming of Trump, Trump's approval rating, according to Rasmussen, was at 48 percent, which is actually up from his approval rating uh, at the end of December, at the end of the year, about where it was going into November 3rd's election. So it sounds. Well, and you also
4: have to understand that President Trump is leaving office right now with this insane riot backdrop that is being amplified by right. the Democrat press as what his 74 million supporters voted for and are like, which is completely false, right. completely false, not at all characteristic. A couple of criminals, you know, do not exemplify law abiding Americans who love our country and would never participate in anything like that. You know, so that's the. But so So President Trump has that kind of approval rating. It is better than George W. Bush. Bushes when he left office. And there are more Republican office holders than when George W. Bush left office. And we all know, you know, George W. Bush, nice guy didn't say, you know, stuff that's more you know, easily misinterpreted that, you know, you know, wasn't given the kind of treatment that President Trump was given. So for a Republican leadership to kind of take to join in and help Democrats do their dirty work, especially given those sorts of situations among their own voters, very foolish.
2: That, that's what I, it seems. It seems to be a massive miscalculation both about the future of the party as well as the future healing, to borrow the word of the day, uh, for the country.
4: Well I mean Americans are going to get healing when we do exactly what democratic leadership are exactly trying not to have when we all unite against violence to accomplish you know methods You know, to to accomplish political ends, uh, no matter who the violence comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's other things that Americans absolutely support across partisan lines that Democrats are not going to do again for partisan gain. You know, such as, for example, proving without a doubt 100 percent that there is impossible, you know, that that, uh, any electoral challenges would be heard fairly and completely all the evidence brought out. And if there are conspiracy theories and where there are conspiracy theories, they can be completely debunked in the, you know, open light. That's not going. Instead, you know, what their method for responding to this is repression. Shut people up, shove them into corners, label them bigots again, and just completely ignore all of their concerns. That is a recipe for increasing unrest. It is not a recipe for unity. And they are absolutely playing with fire, and they cannot not know that.
2: There are so many examples of this uh, playing out in real time, including The lack of rallying to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley against uh, suggestions uh, like the one from Benny Thompson, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Democrat from Mississippi, saying that uh, they should be there should be consideration to put Senators Cruz and Hawley on the no fly list as if they are domestic terrorists.
4: Well, it's, it's completely insane. If you want to have more Americans marching on capitals, that is the way to get it. Because we all know that if someone is called a terrorist, you have no more rights. So to take a U.S. senator, you know, who is duly elected by the people of their states who represent and were standing up to say, look, the people have concerns and they should not be silenced and repressed. They should have a fair and open hearing of their concerns and to call speech violence, you know, to call speech terrorism and, you know, after they've been after the Democrats in the left have been gaslighting us for nine months, saying that violence is speech if it's done by a leftist like, you know, that there is almost nothing that you could do that would be the, a worse response. To this unstable situation that our country is obviously in. That is, I mean, you need to, leadership means being cool, telling, you know, help people to calm down, that we can resolve our problems with words. And if we want to resolve our problems with words, that you have to give people the ability to actually say words, to be heard. And, you know, that's the opposite of what we're seeing happen. Very dangerous, and they're only making things worse.
2: Well, well, particularly when those words come under uh, a. Legal process, a process animated by federal statute that uh, Democrats took advantage of in the previous three presidential elections to object to uh, to object during the electoral certification process. That's those are the crimes in quotation marks that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz committed
4: Right. Well, and they're be calling in, you know, just again, you know, people, you know, the Democrats are uh, accusing President Trump, you know, and all Republicans of be, Republicans are of being insurrectionists and seditionists, literally, you know, traitors to the country. You know, I mean, the, the, the punishment for treason is traditionally, you know, lining them up against the wall and being shot. I mean, the, the, you know, but the, they the, the, then they complain about President Trump's rhetoric at the same time that they're saying insane things like that. You know, the, it, the, this is almost seems calculated to break Americans brains and to increase, you know, if, if you know, if their distrust <laughs> and their anger, you know, but it's, it's, again, we need to do the exact opposite. Tell Americans, look, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to have more discourse, not less. You know, we are not going to treat disagreement as if if you say something I disagree with, you're a criminal and I might threaten you with the police grabbing you and putting you on no fly list. You know, they, they've got to be stopped and be called out for it. But unfortunately, I really don't see. What possible mechanisms can get them to stop? <laughs> because, again, you know, voters, you know, I don't I, I just have to hope that most Americans were ignorant of the fact that they just gave a lot of power to people who were abusing it wildly and are, you know, very. very
2: breaking America's brains, Yeah, breaking America's brains. I, I like that phrase because I, I think that's what's happening. I, I feel like mine is uh, under duress. Um, when we come back with Joy Pullman, I want to talk about uh, this uh, op-ed you penned for the Federalist. That suggests a, a, a social credit score system is uh, perhaps upon us. Joy Pullman, executive editor of TheFederalist.com. We'll be right
5: back.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Joy Pullman. She's the executive editor of The Federalist, thefederalist.com. And, uh, Joy, uh, talking about uh, the purge that is ongoing among private sector uh, businesses, uh, Fortune 1000 businesses, trade associations like the National Association of Realtors and others, uh, you suggest that uh, perhaps the direction we're heading with the uh, cheerleading of Democrat socialists, of course, and the media and their handmaidens of the media is to some sort of uh, Chinese communist style social credit system.
4: Right. And I have to be really precise about that. You know, I, and, and we have, we all have to be really careful about the words that we're saying obviously right now, you know, um, because we have to be really clear eyed and cool and calm and not responding in rage. <laughs> um, you know, and, and obviously the United States is not the same as China and it's not, you know, going to be there, uh, you know, Tomorrow. <laughs> but, you know, there are elements of which where, you know, um, basically the communists have perfected, as the Chinese communists have perfected, uh, using government and economic pressure to force socially desired or governmentally desired behaviors. And that is exactly what we're seeing these international, you know, tech and other big corporate oligarchs exporting to the United States by using their economic power. To punish people who disagree with them, and so we've seen that in the purge this week, of course, of all the social media that's going on, not just the President Trump, but for example, the you know the globe's largest legal you know uh, site for people who are gun and shoot legal gun and shooting enthusiasts, which by the way is still a Second Amendment protected right, and you know the you know almost all. In fact, you know, anyway, you know, the people who own and and share, it's not illegal or evil, you know, to learn how to defend yourself and other people, to go hunting, that sort of thing. But so the world's largest discourse site for, you know, gun enthusiasts was pulled off the Internet by its web hoster, GoDaddy. And we've also had, you know, a sort of major banks um, refusing, you know, credit card processing companies refusing to process payments for um, conservative Christian groups because they're, you know, they express Christian ideas um, about, you know, how people should use sexuality. Um, you know, so, so again, our, our, our constitution forbids the federal government from using, from abusing people in this way, from punishing them for their views. So basically, you know, these um, companies are taking the sort of cultural revolution, the totalitarian mindset that is controlling China the country, yeah. and bringing it to the United States and right. kind of forcing you know Americans to live under their unelected regime.
2: Who needs the government when you have corporate America? Precisely, I wonder if this is a, an opportunity for the Republican Party to actually do some uh, post-Trump branding and uh, take the, uh, the, the actions of corporate America, all these big announcements about we're suspending our political donations to Republicans generally or to specific Republicans who objected to the uh, outcome of the election, uh, you know, Dow Chemical and Marriott and Blue Cross Blue Shield Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs and so forth, and say, you know what? Thank you, rent-seeking ruling class corporations, (laughs) because here's what we're going to do. Good riddance. (laughs) Exactly. You woke corpse. You can keep your crony cash because we're a party for people who play by the rules on Main Street. And what we're going to do is make sure you big boys have to play by those same rules going forward. We don't want your money.
4: Well, and in fact, that you know, the, the corporations did something that's really dangerous to them, but really great for the American people by yanking their money from Republicans, because you know, the, the basically the incestuous nature, you know, between big corporations and Republican leadership is a big reason that Republicans have failed to use um, their political power when they had it over the past four years under President Trump to actually do legislation and other lawmaking in the best interest of their voters to protect us. From these totalitarian thinking big business owners, um, and and so now you know if if they're if they're not going to get any money out of big business and their voters hate them, you know for basically you know always grandstanding without actually you know provide actually making any using their power, um, you know to do anything that backs up the grandstanding, then that really frees the Republican Party from again you know just having to basically be as cor- you know, corrupt. Corrupted by this money, and they can start actually, hopefully, um, you know, proving to us voters that they are willing to use any power that we give them, you know, to not be corrupted by these, uh, you know, organizations that aren't going to give them money anymore anyway.
2: Uh, something else, uh, Ro Khanna, congressman from California, said on CNN yesterday. I wanted to get your reaction to. Uh, here's his uh, his concern about uh, Republicans under threat of violence
1: and and what people don't realize is that the threat of violence is not just against democrats or progressives it's actually against republicans i have talked to some of my colleagues i don't want to say who but who have had death threats people who have voted uh for certification they are facing the threats of violence so this is a terrible situation for many people who are serving and it crosses party lines
2: It's a way to sound uh, even-handed without actually being even-handed because I don't remember Rokana or Democrats generally being concerned about Ted Wheeler being besieged at his condo building by Antifa last summer. Myriad other examples. This is a way to try to,
4: you know, the protesters surrounding the home of Josh Hawley in DC while his wife and their newborn are cowering inside and he's not home. Tucker Literally Carlson's wife, you know, same thing. This is this is this is a this is a, exactly. this is a way insane. to appear
2: a, appear to be reasonable without actually being reasonable.
4: Uh, I mean, you know, to be honest, I don't I I don't like to comment on people's motivations. You know, I haven't followed the rest of the statements re- got, related there. But again, I, yeah, exactly. You know, when people see that it's okay to threaten, uh, you know, a, a postpartum mother and a newborn baby in her home, <laughs> you know. Um, for one side, and then it's an insurrection and in domestic terrorism when a bunch of people, you know, smash down windows and, and and doors, you know, elsewhere. You know, that's that's a glaringly obvious double standard, and I don't support either of those. You know, no, of I'm course. Not, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, it's so offensive, you know, to me and and all the you know people who voted for Trump, you know, to be assumed that you know we support violence and crime. <laughs> You know, but what's really just get, you know, your goat is, oh, you know, just because I did that or I say, hey, you know, I share some of the ideas that President Trump has championed. You know, you could have people on your doorstep knocking down your small business. You know, happen people who attended this Trump rally at which some of the violence broke out. You know, there were hundreds of thousands of people there, a couple hundred of them, you know, engaged in criminal activity. The rest of them walked around in the streets with flags, you know. And some of the people who walk around the streets with flags are losing their jobs. They're losing their businesses. You know this culture. You know the, this. The, you know, and and who's going to stand up for them? That's uh, that is wrong. And again, basically, I'm I'm in a position of all the wrong things need to be dealt with, not just only wrong things done by people on the political right.
2: Yeah, and and I mean, there's just something else too that I I don't think the Republican Party seems to understand, which is the appeal of Trump, even despite all of his flaws was the feeling among tens of millions of Americans that here's a guy who had my back against some of these illiberal forces we see Acting uh, illiberally in the last week, and now who has my back? And the answer uh, most of those people uh, are, are providing to that nobody. question is nobody. Exactly.
4: Exactly. And if you, I mean, again, like I was saying earlier, if you want a recipe for increased radicalization, people acting out of fear instead of carefully and soberly and rationally, like, that is the way to get it.
2: She is Joy Pullman, executive editor of TheFederalist.com. Joy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank You, you-
5: for your right to day.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft And this is the Dan Proft Show
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proff Show. Continuing our conversation about the fallout from January 6th and now the fallout from January 13th with uh, the impeachment. Uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, tweet from May 16th of 2017. Our election was hijacked. There is no question. Congress has a duty to hashtag protect our democracy. Hmm. You remember when that was considered rhetorical excess rather than sedition? If Pelosi says hijack, she's protecting our democracy. If Pelosi says right and proper, she's protecting our democracy. Who needs a standard of decorum when we have its living living embodiment? We just turn to Nancy Pelosi and whatever she utters. This is not a defense of uh, President Trump, who we've talked uh, extensively about in terms of his performance on January 6th. But it is an effort to sort of drive a conversation back to standards, And what triggers what and how we receive rhetorical excess, as well as abrogation of duty from politicians across the spectrum. For more on that, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Heather McDonald. She's written on the topic. Thomas W. Smith, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Um your um, reaction to, you know, what's, I mean, just give me sort of the um, expanse, the, the Reader's Digest version of the expansive case you laid out in your piece in city journal entitled Trump's Exit from January 6th to January 13th, the last week that was.
6: Well, I, I think that we're in an increasingly perilous position in this country with a uh, huge epistemological divide between how the right and the left see the world, and also, frankly, within the right. Uh, You know, one's reactions to Trump's speech, how much you view it as incitement or not, depends to a large extent, I think, on whether you believe the underlying claim he was pursuing up to the bitter end and still pursues about whether there was systemic, deliberate fraud across the country to so-called rig the election. You know, there's people within the conservative ranks, there's quite deep divides about whether that is a plausible claim or not. Uh, and, you know, the, the hypocrisy that you point out is, is galling it's nauseating, Uh, it's shameless. The destruction that was wreaked constantly uh, over the summer into the fall on cities uh, overwhelms in, in absolute monetary damage, damage of life to livelihoods from anything that happened on January 6th. Unfortunately, uh, what did happen on January sixth, and, and was not condemned, was celebrated by the Democrats, by the mainstream media, by the elite establishment. You had corporate America taking a knee, kowtowing before the ludicrous charge that this is a systemically racist country, and the and Republicans have been have been principled in condemning that violence, and they have condemned. Y- unequivocally what went on uh, on January 6th. Nevertheless, sadly, uh, the Republicans have lost the high ground, the moral high ground in their support for law enforcement because of the uh, thoughtless actions, the loudish, boorish actions of, of a handful of people who had no respect for the norms of our government. And I would say taking a cue to a certain extent from the personality of Donald Trump himself.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when when we come back, I want to explore that because I think this is um, important. Uh, For a time, um, there was a belief among conservatives that character is destiny. And uh, many conservatives held that belief but uh, had, you know, sort of out of uh, – the, the, the imperative of the choice went with Donald Trump and hoped to uh, sort of cordon off some of his excesses as much as possible, including with Mike Pence and others around him. But I wonder if uh, how this ends is a manifestation of that axiom that character is destiny. We'll get Heather McDonald's response, Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smithfeld, the Manhattan Institute, contributing at our City Journal, the book. The Diversity, Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. will be right there.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This, 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 this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're pleased to be joined by Heather McDonald. She is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. And before the break... I pose the question whether or not character is still destiny and uh, Trump's exit from the presidency is a manifestation of that. And I I speak of not just his own uh, sort of navel-gazing narcissism, but also those he put around him and those he tolerated around him if they were seen as allies of convenience. And over the last six weeks, that would include Sidney Powell, on-again, off-again, Lynn Wood, uh, and those are just the latest in a cast of characters over the last four years that have put uh, President Trump as well as his supporters in difficult positions of trying to rationalize some very uh, questionable conduct. And, and I wonder if, if – um, so to the larger question, that's what you see happening at the end, It finally uh, the, the, the destiny of Trump's character caught up to him.
6: I completely agree, Dan, and I find myself asking. I have never been a never-Trumper. I have always, with with great reluctance, but felt like Trump was the lesser of two evils, and the, the dominance and tyranny of the left and its deliberate assault on the greatness of Western civilization was something that was worse than anything that we could contemplate. The never-Trumpers, however, did argue that... Uh, Trump's character disqualified him and that and in so doing they would then understate then they continue to underplay the threat that the uh, Harris Biden regime is going to pose to this country. I mean it is very very scary. Nevertheless, I find myself asking since January 6 whether they were right all along despite their their uh, you know preening self-righteousness. Mm. Uh, There may be something to that, and that Trump, the the disregard that he has shown throughout for the norms, not just of manliness, chivalry, honor, respect, but for the presidency itself, uh, that that, we've seen that to the bitter end with him breaking too many taboos. And that, again, that doesn't mean we want the swamp, and and we don't want – to return to the status quo ante of conservatism Inc., that is too terrified to to disrupt the status quo, but uh, but but it may be that there was a degree of vindictive narcissism that is just beyond the pale. And again, uh, to all of the Trump supporters, yes. President Obama was a narcissist yes, he could not stop talking about himself hmm. but but there was something even beyond that in Trump uh, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pass blame to, to Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood Trump is responsible for enabling uh, those people who continued to pull a, a constant bait and switch with regards to this claim of of systemic election rigging which I've, to be honest, you know, I'm going to speak speak frankly here. To me, struck me constantly as sheer lunacy.
2: Uh, what you mean in terms of the the release the Kraken uh, business?
6: Yeah the, the, yeah, the fact. I mean, if if you're going to rig an election, why would you then allow Republicans to win down ballot? I, I do not believe that we are at a third world state of of systemic corruption that would allow something like that to happen. You know, Trump, on January 6th, in his speech in the Ellipse, was talking about Georgia in the runoff election, which, of course, Trump lost us. You know, he's responsible for losing the Senate. Uh, But he was claiming that that election, too, was rigged by virtue of Brian Kemp allowing the Dominion voting systems to be used. So we're supposed to believe that under enormous uh, media and and Republican scrutiny that somehow once again the Dominion voting machines were used to switch votes. I'm sorry, we've got to apply the Hume test for miracles. Is this more (laughs) likely than not? It is more likely not to be true that the Georgia runoff election, in 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 was involving fraud on the part of Kemp and Raffensperger and and the Democrats in power in Georgia.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I I don't uh, embrace the never Trump position even at this uh, stage, but uh, but I hear what you're saying in terms of contemplating it. Uh, but but there's something else, too, about Trump. And I, I've said this when I was such a reluctant supporter of his candidacy. I went from Scott Walker to Ted Cruz to then Trump when he was the nominee against Hillary Clinton, of course. But um, the, the lack of specificity, uh, unless he was scripted. There was just sort of, there was always sort of over the top claims when the specifics that we knew to be true or specific questions that were legitimate to raise were more than sufficient. And it was the same case with uh, the claims of election fraud. If you would have just stuck to the four corners of the end runs around state legislatures in places like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin by the courts and by the administrative agencies, respectively. If you would have stuck to cohorts of questionable ballots being counted in the states in question, it would have been so much more productive to drive to actual answers to these questions that would have uh, at least more satisfied uh, Trump supporters and maybe Trump himself. And it would have perhaps provided the imperative for a more graceful and sooner exit than ultimately uh, what we got.
6: Yeah, well, that's a good point. I, I think what I saw, and, you know, this is where, again, I, I speak of the cleavage within conservatives, because many of my colleagues, who I respect enormously, that are brilliant writers and analysts, uh, they've been pushing the systemic rigging analysis uh, to the absolute umpteenth perspective and um you know it, it to me it just it, it's not credible and it, it requires uh too much too much suspension of disbelief that that it takes us into realms that that just don't don't stand up
2: Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing at our City Journal, the book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Thanks, as always, Heather. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you, Dan. I appreciate having being on.
0: Podcast of the show at DanProftShow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, James O'Keefe and the Project Veritas crew have done it again. Undercover reporting on a former, emphasis, principal uh, attorney for PBS, the public broadcasting system, a former, because he either resigned or was fired, depending on the uh, published account, you believe. This is why some of the commentary that uh, Michael Beller had about President Trump, as well as President Trump's supporters.
3: We'll go through a lot of Republican voters
7: and Homeland
8: Security between the children
9: and the children.
8: And we'll put them into the re-education.
9: Amen. In these times, uh, which are
8: unique. I
4: mean, get so, so, me. What are we going to do if we don't like
5: this? Go
0: to the White House and throw Molotov
8: cocktails
2: a little difficult to hear. But uh, among the things he said in that exchange, and it's uh, captioned, if you go online and watch it, I'll tweet it out. Trump is Hitler, basically Hitler. He uh, said that not only are you going to defeat Trump, but we're going to take kids of Trump supporters and put them in DHS re-education camps. He was asked if uh, Biden doesn't win, what are you going to do? Go to the White House and throw Molotov cocktails. Hmm, those comments didn't age well. He had more comments.
8: Well, those kids who are growing up knowing nothing but Trump, you know, for four years, you got to wonder what else they're going to be like. Are we raising a generation
3: of intolerant,
8: you know,
10: kids?
2: We're going to be raising a nation of intolerable, horrible kids because for the last four years they've known nothing but Trump. Well, two things on that. One, I reject the premise two just in terms of uh, the premise of trump and trump supporters number one number two the idea as we've discussed before that as a parent you know i'm just captive to whoever the president is and however he acts and that's how my kids will be raised i have no influence over that shows you sort of the government centric hyper politicized view of the world by champagne socialists like mr beller
9: great they're
11: nice. They have Sesame Street characters in the classroom and they
8: watch PBS all day. I'm, I'm going
4: go home and, so and watch it.
8: No, most people are dumb. It's good to live in a place where people are,
0: you know, educated and know stuff. And can you imagine if you lived in one of these other
1: towns or states where everybody's just. You know,
2: Stupid. right uh, he it's good to live in dc as he was referring to where people are are smart and educated rather than in one of those states that supports trump where everybody's an idiot that's sort of your pro forma elitist viewpoint uh, about themselves and about those who disagree with them calling for enlightenment camps he was there mr beller separated from his position at pbs with pbs doing their pro forma we don't uh, su- support uh, uh, violence or the suggestion of violence in any way, shape, or form, and so on and so forth. Uh, O'Keefe did uh, catch up with Baller at a restaurant and tried to get him to comment on his comments, and instead he ran inside the restaurant and called the police. Ah, uh, yes, the courage of the left to defend who they actually are when exposed. This is Dan Proft.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Joe Biden, uh, providing a video message about uh, COVID relief for our small business entrepreneurs, job creators in America, had uh, this to say in terms of uh, where his administration will focus.
0: Our priority will be black, Latino, Asian, and Native American-owned small businesses, women-owned businesses. And finally, having equal access to resources needed to reopen and rebuild. But we're going to make a concerted effort to help small businesses in low-income communities, in big cities, small towns, rural communities, that have faced systemic barriers to relief.
2: Systemic barriers to relief. There was no uh, identitarian prequal for the payroll protection program, as I recall. But uh, more to the point, the idea that uh, equity will be front and center with respect to reopening our economy, with respect to COVID relief, just as equity has been front and center in some states and cities with respect to vaccine distribution. And how has that performed? Has that enhanced the distribution of vaccines so that particularly as you go up the age demographics, as many people get as vaccinated as quickly as possible to protect those who are the most vulnerable. I ask that against the backdrop of 27 million doses of vaccines having been distributed and only 9 million doses of vaccines having been deployed. And now we're going to take that same approach to economic growth. For a reaction to this and a more global discussion about uh, what America's economy may look like in 2021 and beyond as a result of some of the decisions that have been made in 2020 into 2021. I'm pleased to be joined by James Rickards. He's the editor of Strategic Intelligence, New York Times bestselling author of The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. James Rickards, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you
2: to have you here you are not uh, as sanguine as many to put it lightly in terms of how the economy will snap back against the backdrop of the lockdown policies and other pandemic responses that have been affected from last march to present and frankly at least based on what those in charge are saying uh, will continue to be the policies at least for the next several months
11: that's right now. I tell people I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a realist and analyst. So I base it on data, I base it on good models. And when you look at it, Wall Street and the White House, you know, go back to last spring, they were, uh, we'll have a V shaped recovery. You know, the economy will go down sharply, but we'll come back sharply. And we're going to have pent up demand, and that's going to get the economy back on its feet. As soon as I heard pent up demand, I thought back to 2009. Remember green shoots, everything the green shoots, the economy mm-hmm. is going to come back. All we got at the time were brown weeds. we never got that kind of growth We had, we had an expansion, a long one, but it was the weakest in American history. Same thing here um, so first of all, so let 's say let 's go back to the lockdown uh, you know last spring. My wife and I usually go out to dinner on a Friday night. Uh, we quarantined and locked just like everybody else in March, April, and May so finally, by June, the restaurant was o- restaurants were opening up. We went out to dinner i didn 't order nine dinners. I ordered one like I usually do in other words, nine dinners I was uh, locked down and didn't go out that was permanently lost there was no pent-up demand for nine dinners they just had one uh... you know same thing across the economy as a whole uh, number one number two a lot of businesses didn't reopen it w- they went bankrupt you know if you had twenty employees they said well you lay them all off and you'll hire back ten well not if you don't reopen and hundreds of thousands if not millions of businesses did not reopen they, they never survived now where are we now the pandemic right now in terms of caseloads and uh... fatalities It's 10 times worse than it was last spring. That's the data from the Johns Hopkins coronavirus dashboard. Again, I don't make these things up. You can actually look at it. Ten times worse in terms of caseload and fatalities. What are the governors doing? They're locking down again. And by the way, lockdowns don't work. And there's very good science behind that. That's not speculation or opinion. We have the data now because this this has lasted for a year. They they, they go around the world. They look at every country in the world. There were extreme lockdowns in places like Korea. There were mild lockdowns in places like Sweden. And some places didn't lock down at all. South Dakota is a good example. They never locked down. They just made it a voluntary thing. But the the data shows that the caseload and fatalities were the same regardless of your lockdown policy, which means lockdowns don't work. They're not an explanatory variable. They don't stop the spread of the virus. They're very good at destroying the economy. They do that. And the politicians just need to be seen to be doing something, so they go lock it down. It doesn't stop the spread of the virus. We see that today. We've been locking down on and off for a year, and the virus is 10 times worse than it was a year ago. So you know, explain to me how lockdowns work. The answer is they don't.
2: Just on that score, um, there was a, effectively an admission of that by Andrew Cuomo—not formally, but implicitly—in his State of the State address, where he said, despite the fact you described where the case loads are, case fatality, uh, case fatalities are, that uh, we can't stay locked down forever. We can't wait till vaccinations reach critical mass. We have to reopen our economy. That's as Andrew Cuomo of all people.
11: Well, uh, first of all, he's right about that, and the reason is he destroyed it. It it was all of his lockdowns in the past year have destroyed small business. One approximately one million people have left New York City. The population is eight million, so you're talking about twelve percent of the population. Got up and left, and again we have the data on this. When people move, they file a change of address notice with the post office. That's publicly available information. And the 300,000 notices were filed through October. More since then, but just take the hard data from October. But if uh, that's households, but if there's you know on average three people per household, it could be more or less individual cases. That's a million people, almost a million people, and the and the number's higher. So cities are the greatest wealth-generating mechanisms, agglomerations in the history of civilization. When you depopulate cities you destroy wealth creation. That's exactly what's going on. Some of it's the riots, some of it's high taxes, uh, but a lot of it's these lockdowns. I mean, these, these businesses can't survive. Restaurant, a bar, a nail salon, a gas station, a boutique, they don't have $5 million of working capital. You know, they have revenue, they pay their expenses, and they make a little profit, but they can't survive, and they haven't. So Cuomo, yeah, he talks a good game, but by the way, New York is heavily locked down, so he may talk about it, but that's just political posturing. He doesn't He doesn't know what he's doing, and it would be one thing if it worked. I mean, that you might not want to bear that cost, even if it did work. But what's worse is that it doesn't work. Lockdowns are killing more people than they're saving. Suicide rates have tripled, murder rates have doubled, alcohol abuse, drug abuse up, domestic violence up, depression, anxiety, uh, the role on the increase. In, and by the way, when you look at the riots last summer and then the uh, riot on Capitol Hill last week, you know, take the politics out of it. I understand everyone's got a political cause or whatever, but a lot of that and more to come, I would say, are being triggered by people being locked up and quarantined uh, for no good reason, jobs being destroyed and that just builds up the anger. So it's expressing itself in these political movements, but as part of the, the pandemic uh, response.
2: And the uh, book is The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. Well, you've just uh, described who the winners are, and you've described sort of in general terms who some of the losers are. And I think when the water recedes maybe in the spring and summer and people don't recognize what downtown Chicago or New York or San Francisco or L.A. look like, maybe it will impress upon them what has happened. But I want to get your sense of what you think the implications are for who you think the winners and losers are, that the post-pandemic American society with this group of winners and this much, much larger group of losers and what that portends for America.
11: Sure great question. The, the first thing to, that's important to understand is that the effects of this are going to be intergenerational. This is going to linger for 30 years. I'm not saying we're going to have you know 30-year depression, but the effects of the depression will linger for 30 years. And I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it was a very prosperous time in, Amer- in the American economy. I did not live through the Great Depression, but my parents did, and my grandparents did. And I was raised with kind of a depression mentality, even though it was a pretty good time for the economy. We used to go out as 9-year-old kids with our wagons and collect newspapers and tin cans, door-to-door, we weren't doing it for environmental reasons. Maybe it was good for that, but we were recycling because you could take the tin and build battleships. I mean, that didn't change until the late 60s when the baby boomers came of age. So the, the, the after effects were 30 years. That's going to be true today. And I hear Jay Powell, you know, chairman of the Fed say, uh, we're not going to raise interest rates until 2023. I'm like, try 2043, Jay, because that, that's what you're talking about. Now, it doesn't mean there's no growth in the meantime, but growth is going to be very slow. So where, where are the attractive sectors? residential real estate in places that people are moving to. So they're leaving Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, Baltimore, and some other cities. Where are they going? They're going to Nashville, Miami, Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, Austin, and Boise, Idaho, and, and some other places. So uh, there's a housing shortage. So look at you know if you can find uh, opportunities to invest in multifamily housing with good managers in those locations. That's a good idea. I recommend 10-year Treasury notes. Uh, They're safe because they're backed by the U.S. government. Uh, People say interest rates are going to go up. No, interest rates have to come down. Uh, They're low in what's called nominal terms. That's the number you see on TV. But when you subtract inflation, which is the real rate, those real rates are still high, and they have to come down a lot lower. Gold, I recommend a 10% slice, not 50%. Don't go all in. But 10% will protect you against inflation uh, and obviously preserve wealth. So, and and a slug of cash. Uh, there's so much uncertainty. The person with cash can pivot. Meaning, when we get a little more clarity you know, later this year, uh, and you see where the opportunities really are. If you've already, you know, put your money into a, a whatever a private equity fund or venture capital or or some other asset that's hard to get out of, uh, well, you're stuck. Uh, but if you have cash. You've got degrees of freedom, so that's a good asset to have as well.
2: James Rickards, editor of Strategic Intelligence, New York Times bestselling author of The New Great Depression Winners and Losers in a Post Pandemic World. James Rickards, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. The irony of uh, President Trump celebrating one of the accomplishments of his administration, even as some Republicans were consorting with Democrats to vote to impeach the president a second time today, President Trump in Alamo, Texas, yesterday.
3: And today we celebrate an extraordinary milestone, the completion of the promised 450 miles of border wall. 450 miles. Nobody realizes how big that is.
2: And the um, consequence of that accomplishment, at least in part, it's not all directly attributable to the wall, but it is in part and to the administration's disposition with respect to border security.
3: In every region that we've built the wall, illegal crossings and drug smuggling have plummeted, absolutely plummeted. In the Rio Grande Valley, crossings have dropped nearly 80 percent. In Yuma, Arizona, illegal entries have been slashed by 90 percent. Nationwide ICE and Border Patrol have seized over two million pounds of fentanyl, heroin, meth, and other deadly narcotics, saving thousands and thousands of lives. We've arrested nearly 500,000 illegal aliens with criminal records, some with very serious criminal records of the type you don't want to know about, like murder. We removed nearly 20,000 gang members from the United States, including 4,500 members of MS-13, probably the worst gang of them all.
2: So it just in terms of uh, national security, the physical security of Americans, that was in part the topic of his remarks at the border wall, the border wall his administration built at the same time he's uh, being impeached for allegedly inciting violence. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, Trumponomics author, Wall Street Journal columnist, uh, editorial board member, and economist. Steve, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it.
7: Hi, Dan. How are you doing?
2: Your uh, sort of perspective on President Trump's accomplishments right up until the very end, as yesterday, against the backdrop of what is going to happen in the House
7: today. Well, I mean, this president had amazing accomplishments, especially on the economy. We had the lowest poverty rate, lowest unemployment rate, lowest inflation rate highest job, wage gains, There's was really quite spectacular. And even people who voted for Biden in the election admitted that Trump was much better on the economy than Biden would be. So what's going on right now, Dan, which is highly
11: disturbing,
7: is that not only is the left is impeaching not just Trump, but his economic ideas and his followers. And I think that's reprehensible. Look, we should learn from what worked and what didn't work. For the most part, Trump's policies worked spectacularly well. I kind of almost hope that they do impeach Trump because it will be so outrageous. People will see how deranged the left really is. The American people don't want Trump impeached. I think he should be censured for his behavior of the last couple of weeks. I think it's been indefensible. to impeach him with what five or six days to go. It's it's just being punitive. And it's meant to really strike at the heart of the people who have been his followers for four years.
2: Well, a a couple of things. One, just on this, you know, resign and have Pence pardon you. You know, this is such a good example of this sort of surrender Republican mentality. First of all, it comes from a place of ignorance, people who don't even understand the implication of that. Number one, the implication of bending the knee to the left, which you shouldn't do. Number two, Oh, by the way, a pardon does not prevent impeachment. And all that would do is wave a red cape in the face of Nancy Pelosi and probably Mitch McConnell to move forward with an impeachment trial post presidential term. So the pardon has the effect only with respect to potential federal statutory charges. It doesn't have anything to do with impeachment. It doesn't have anything to do with state charges. The idea that this would forestall what the left is intent on doing, which is using Trump to divide Republicans and unite Democrats, is just such a facile understanding of politics it's just astounding to me that said
7: and you know um, what Dan, let me just say something that i agreed with every word you just said but the other thing that's so odd about this and weird is if i were an economic or political advisor for joe Biden, what i would do is you know say look we should not impeach donald trump he's going to be gone in six weeks if he really wanted to unite the country why antagonize the 50% of Americans who are Trump voters? I mean, the anti Trump derangement syndrome is so severe, they can't even do what's in their own self interest.
2: Yeah, totally agreed. Speaking of you and your friends, Kudlow and Laffer, yep. uh, a Forbes editor, the Lincoln Project, say guys like you should never work in yep. that town called D.C. again. How do you react to
7: that? Well, the Lincoln Project is, is not Republicans. For people have to realize that these are radical leftists, uh, and, and these are uh, people who have left the party, and um, they are extremely upset with people like John Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and people like Cudlow and myself and Laffer, because they became irrelevant. And the worst thing in Washington is to be irrelevant (laughs) to where nobody calls you anymore. Nobody cares about your opinion anymore. And uh, that's these people like Schmidt and others that are heading us up. They become relevant by basically, you know, going to the other side and being used as stooges. Right. I mean, by the way, the Lincoln Project. The people are funding and are not Republicans, folks. These are liberal Democrats who are using the foil. To do exactly what you said, which is to split the Republican Party. You know, Republicans now have to be uh, a, uh, you know, a loyal opposition, loyal opposition. We have to oppose virtually everything that that uh, that uh, Joe Biden wants to do, not because we don't like Joe Biden, because all of his policies are bad for the country. And Republicans have to come up with pro-growth, pro-freedom uh, alternatives. And it really starts with protecting the First Amendment. I don't know about you guys. I am terrified terrified by the left's uh, basically censoring anyone who disagrees with them. And I was only half kidding when I said, you know, they're coming after me, but they're coming after you, too. They mm-hmm. want to get you off the air because you're subversive.
2: My, my concern is much because Donald Trump is well positioned to weather whoever is going to come after him, no matter uh, no matter how, how many uh, big tech companies deplatform him, no matter how many banks don't want to do business with him. But it's um, it's regular people, those uh, seventy four million who voted That's for true. him, who uh, you know you have all these people out there making lists in the media and in uh, in Fortune one thousand companies and down that power the power structure in those companies that are looking for anybody who may have a picture of attending a Trump rally, no matter how peacefully, uh, or a, a pro Trump comment or something, and looking to purge people, and you start to remove people. Their, their ability to make a living, their ability to participate constructively in politics, just try to, to, to sort of browbeat them out of civil society, yep. now, you've got, now you've got a real recipe for disaster. You've got
7: totalitarianism. Yes. And, and this is exactly where it's been headed, actually, for the— I'm not entirely surprised with this. I mean, the left has been you know, radically—has uh, radically taken over the Democratic Party, and they do want to shut up and shut down anyone who disagrees with them and uh it's it's uh it it is very troubling and and you know I just saw a poll that came out uh, that uh, looked at Americans in you know a respect for institutions. This came out uh, literally uh, twenty four hours ago, and it finds among Republicans there is zero trust in government right now it's zero trust in the media and and zero trust even in big tech and then you wonder, gee, why is that? maybe it's because they are coming after us in such a vicious I mean, it's just not America anymore if you do this. We have the right to, you have the right to say what you want. You even have the right to offend people. You don't have the right to, you know, uh, for insurrection or uh, treason. But uh, free speech is everything that America is about. It's the First Amendment, folks.
2: Steve Moore, Trumponomics author, Wall Street Journal editorial board member and economist. Steve, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Okay, guys, great to be on your show. I hope it's going to last throughout the rest of the year under the, <laughs> the Biden administration. Yeah, <laughs> so
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
12: Welcome back to the show
2: as uh, someone who bought a place in uh, Naples a couple, three years ago. And no, not in the Sean Hannity high rent district, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I really appreciate this piece from our friend Dave Seminar in the Wall Street Journal. A message to the haters from Florida man <laughs> in which he uh, takes uh, some of the uh, characterizations of the uh, urbane set in uh, on the eastern seaboard in middle America on the west coast. Uh, Their uh, assessments of Florida to task and um, boy, there's a simple way to uh, undermine the characterizations of Florida as some backwater filled with uh, ill-educated rubes uh, isn't there. We'll get that from Dave Seminar who joins us now. Former diplomat and author of Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons in 10 acts. It sounds like something. Out of a Steve Coogan, Rob Bryden the Trip movie series, or something. Uh, Dave Seminar, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: Dan, thank you very much for having me back on the show. We've got a lot of people from uh, Illinois and around the Midwest here on the Gulf Coast of Florida these days. Don't you? And uh, more <laughs> and And
2: or don't we? I guess as uh, you know, an aspiring Florida resident. I guess I would call myself. Yeah, it's fascinating, and there's a simple way to push back against those who would continue to denigrate Florida just look at um, where people are choosing to live as you're sort of intimating and oh by the way look at how florida is performing as compared to those sophisticated blue states
12: correct this started with me you know having lived here for more than a year and a half we get a lot of strange messages from friends whenever there's strange florida man stories on television <laughs> or back in back in march when there was images of spring break partyers on beaches here went viral around the world i get messages from friends joking with us like Oh my gosh, can't believe you moved to Florida. You idiots in Florida. You guys people ask me too, oh, are you guys even wearing masks at all down there? Like are you guys like they think People up north think that it's like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah down here, like there's literally no rules that we're all just a bunch of morons doing whatever the heck we want. (laughs) And, you know, I started to look into this because it's widely sort of thought that we're the dumbest state in the country. And I thought, all right, well, let me take this seriously and let me start looking at different statistical metrics that would illustrate stupidity, like, for example, accidental deaths at-fault driving accidents, obesity, smoking, teen pregnancy, education, SAT scores, high school dropout rates. And I looked at all these metrics, and I thought at the very least we'd do bad on the driving score because there's a lot of bad drivers down here. But surprisingly, Florida was not at or near the bottom of any of these rankings, and, and surprisingly, we actually scored quite well in some areas.
2: Well, right, and, and by the way, I love the, you referenced Dave Barry, who's one of my uh, favorite uh, Parodists, if you will who talked about uh, and who's uh, you know lifelong uh, my or, or just about lifelong miami and if he's not uh, if he hasn't spent his life there saying that uh, does have Florida does have an usually high percentage of low i q people doing stupid things frequently naked. Uh, <laughs> yeah but uh yeah despite those sort of one-off stories of the strange by the way you get those in the new york post too about uh, new york and folks on the eastern seaboard but but i digress mm-hmm. uh despite that the, the 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 real criticisms of late have been all directed at ron DeSantis, harvard educated by the way but he's um was engaged in human experimentation to listen to uh, governors like my home state governor of uh, of Illinois, my my home state governor in Illinois Pritzker and and Chicago mayor Lori Lightfoot he's engaged in human experimentation he's a crazy man uh he is not following the lockdown protocols that we are following in the enlightened states of New York and Illinois and San, and and California um, but it turns out on on those metrics too the metrics of the last year Florida is uh, certainly outperforming those states
12: uh yes well, the, the perception is that he's a madman and there are all a bunch of idiots down here. But I'll tell you what, you know who I think is the dumbest state in America? I think the stupidest state is the one that sends their children back to school last or the one who keeps their schools closed the longest, however you yes. like to put that. Yes. And I don't want to be rude here, but, you know, we have relatives in Illinois and New York and other states up north. And I feel really sorry for, for our relatives who, where their children are still at home in virtual schooling. I mean, we're down here in Florida for a year and a half now. We moved here from Bend, Oregon. Now, Bend, Oregon has a much lower COVID rate than we do here in Oregon. They, in Florida, they don't have a high COVID rate at all. And yet my children, their friends back in Oregon, they, they're still in virtual schooling now. And the schools have been shut down there forever. I feel sorry for them. Our kids have been back in school here, you know, since August, since last August. You know, there's been a couple cases here or there, Knockwood, of, you know, people getting COVID in their schools, but the schools have not closed down. And thank God for that because there, there really hasn't been any sort of calamities. One teacher here or there, has gotten sick, but, you know, recovered quickly, you know, it hasn't been the disaster that I think the media would like to um, pretend that it is. And I think that, again, really a measure of, you know, a state's stupidity or intelligence or wiseness is how it treats its children and, and how it edu- educates its children. And down here in Florida, the schools are open, and I thank God for that. Uh,
2: there's some other important comparisons and contrasts between Florida and uh, some of the uh, the big blue states, and I want to get to those when we come back with a Dave Seminara. Former uh, diplomat, the book again, I uh, didn't know he was a Roger Federer fan. Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons in ten acts, which releases on March 2nd. More with Dave seminar right after this. It's my Don't
0: the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this, this, this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dave Seminar, a former diplomat, author of the book Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons in ten acts. We're talking about uh, Florida versus uh, New York, California, Illinois. I mean, you could throw other states in there, too, Michigan, New Jersey, uh, across all, all sorts of metrics. And the one we haven't gotten to yet, Dave, which is, um, to me, one of the great tells, One of the great commentaries on how a state's doing where people choose to uh, put down stakes and chart the course of their lives. And Florida is scheduled to gain one or two congressmen after the 2020 census and Illinois, New York, California, all scheduled to lose at least one, if not more congressmen. That says something, too.
12: I actually uh, manually added up the growth figures state by state, comparing Florida to the 25 states that were won by Joe Biden, because I was really curious how they would stack up. And when I say net migration, I mean, over the period 2009, I'm sorry, 2010 to 2020, how many people moved into the state versus how many moved out. And more people moved to Florida, more than 2 million people moved to Florida over the last 10 years. However, the 25 states that voted for Joe Biden, obviously, Illinois is one of those, had a net migration rate of of a little over one million, so basically we had more people move here than twenty five of those blue states, and I think that kind of says it all right there. people are really voting with their feet
2: well, and you see this uh, two very high profile cases of uh, some uh, very successful individuals moving themselves and or their business operations to places like Nashville, Tennessee in Austin, Texas, and throughout the state of Florida. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina. They're not moving. You don't hear a lot of high profile individuals or big businesses saying, we're relocating to Sh- the Chicagoland area, we're relocating to New York City, we're relocating to San Francisco or LA. So that says something too about those smart people who've accomplished so much and built great businesses and amassed great wealth, and they're choosing to flee those, you know, former incubators of uh, dynamism.
12: Right. And in some cases, you've got big companies uh, like Amazon actually trying to, (laughs) floating the idea of moving to AOC's congressional district and her saying, please don't come. And then they don't. don't. The other issue, too, is that you've got people who are moving, you know, to uh, who are migrating south to these various states, but then they're continuing their voting habits. I think we've seen in Georgia, for example where you've got an awful lot of Yankees moving down to Dixie, and but they're continuing to vote for Democrats. And they're sort of changing states, like Virginia used to be a solidly Republican state, and now it's solidly Democrat. And I think that Georgia's sort of heading in the same direction, which is a head-scratcher for some of us.
2: Yeah, that's it's sort of uneven, though, too. I think it's really state by state, because I think uh, in Florida, for example, it's actually getting more conservative. I mean, don't forget, so many of those people uh, fleeing places like Illinois like it's on fire are, even though they're in the minority in Illinois, are center-right voters who um, represent a majority of the migrant away from Illinois to places like Florida. And so, you know, we'll see. Obviously, one of the big tests coming up in 2022, with all the talk about the midterm elections already, uh, is the re-election of Governor Ron DeSantis to see how he does, given all the national criticism that he's taken for the light approach he's taken to, to responding to COVID.
12: Yeah, you know, I'm not a demographer, but my impression is that what we maybe benefit from here in Florida versus, you know, Georgia and, and Virginia is I think the people from the north who are moving to Virginia and Georgia tend to be still more working age, whereas here in Florida, we get obviously get a lot of people who come down here to retire and just generally... I think by demographics, if you look at people who are, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they're going to be more center and right voters as opposed to, you know, young people who are in their 20s, 30s and 40s who want to move to a warmer climate and they're heading to, you know, Georgia and and Virginia are still at working age. So that might be part of it. I don't know.
2: Uh, Some of this, though, too, and and by the way, you know, we're using Florida and some of the other states we're mentioning and some uh, both in terms of uh, where people are going as where people are leaving as sort of proxies for policy. And one of the other things that's been going on in Florida for a long time, you mentioned K through 12 education, kids being back in school now. You know, Florida was ahead of the learning curve when it came to things like school choice. Uh, I mean, Jeb Bush, for all the criticism he took as a national candidate, was a very good governor. He was very good on school choice. And, And they were very innovative here in a way that really focused on the specific needs of of different uh, cohorts of families so for example it wasn't just school choice for low income families they had the, the the Florida two decades ago came up with the McKay scholarship program specifically for families who have a child with a developmental disability if they weren't satisfied with the public school they were going to those resources that are guaranteed uh, under federal law uh, and in and, and, and execution of the individual education plan for these uh, students with disabilities. Well, they could take those uh, resources and go to any school that provided uh, the fulfillment of those individual education plans. And you saw, for example, those families that were McKay scholarship families go from like 33% of those families approved of were happy with the services their child was being provided at school to over 90%. And so, you know, again, that doesn't make headlines. That I guess is not so salacious. So it's not so interesting, but boy, it's real meaningful for those families.
12: It's very meaningful. You raise a great point. And I think if the, if the Republican leadership is smart and I'm not sure if they really do have their finger on the pulse of what uh, Americans care about, especially women, they should focus much more on education that they do. Highlighting the differences on education between the Republican and the Democratic parties, because I think school choice is a winning issue for Republicans. And I also think keeping schools open is a winning, winning uh, position for Republicans. But they failed to really effectively highlight those two positions, I think, very well in the last election. And moving forward, I think they'll need to do a better job with that.
2: I wonder what you think about, you know, sort of this. Uh this ongoing bifurcation of the nation between uh, sort of lockdown states and free states, for lack of a better description. And it seems to me this is going to have a long tail that will persist uh, even when at some point, hopefully soon, herd immunity is achieved through vaccinations and infections.
12: Right. Well, you know, I have I grew up in the Buffalo area and I've also lived in Chicago, too, but Buffalo is really my hometown. And when I have relatives and friends from Buffalo, and other places come down here to Florida, they feel like, oh my gosh, things are still, things are sort of normal here. Of course we are still wearing masks. We're not, we're not like, it's not completely crazy down here, but businesses are still open. We can go out to eat. Museums are open. We can still uh, go out to some sporting events in limited capacities. Like life is going on here. And I feel like people get off the plane here and they feel like, wow, we're back in free America. And it's just incredibly stark contrast. And yet at the same time, our COVID you know, death rates per capita are not higher than in some of these really strict lockdown states. In a lot of cases, they're considerably lower. But this isn't leading to any sort of soul-searching or re-evaluation of those policies up north. They're just sort of stubbornly plodding along with those. And I think it, it must be very frustrating for people who live in the lockdown states.
2: He is Dave Seminara. He's a former diplomat. He's the author of Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and 10 acts, which releases on March 2nd. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
12: Thanks so much for having me. Now ain't the
1: open
5: night train. Now ain't the open night train. Now ain't the open night train.
0: Listen to the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show, uh, building off our conversation about uh, residents of lockdown states being a bit frustrated, all the more frustrated when you have uh, politicians like Chuck Schumer representing your state, um, talking about uh, New York State, and uh, this heckler that interrupted Pagliacci's sidewalk press conference yesterday. Now, I don't agree with everything that you're about to hear, okay? So I I play this clip with some trepidation, but... One of the things this Heckler did that was rather enjoyable frankly is just repeat back to Chuck Schumer all of the cliches of the left and uh, she had a uh, pretty amazing recall to uh, string them back at Chuck Schumer the way that so many politicians string them to us listen
5: to this I am glad I didn't think that the had it in them. I didn't think the conservatives did. But you know what? You racist socialists can dish it out, but you can't take it. And remember this Adolf Hitler was a socialist. And that's exactly who you follow. You're nothing but a coward. See, you hide underneath your desk, I actually got sexually excited over it. That's how much I loathe you. That's how much I'm glad what they do. And like Nancy Pelosi said, people do what they do. After all, she doesn't care about monuments, and neither do I. And where the First Amendment doesn't say that you have to protest peacefully and politely. As long as there's outrage and unrest in our hearts, there's going to be unrest in these streets. I don't, I don't give a whether you're going to leave. You're nothing but a cracker for all you are for so racist cracker. You can dish it out. Look, you got protection. Why don't you tell them to stand down, hypocrite? Did you tell the Capitol Police to stand
2: down? Uh Okay, high octane there, but it was impressive to string uh the words of Nancy Pelosi and Chris Cuomo and Ayanna Presley. if you didn't catch those references, right back at Chuck Schumer. Uh It is important to point out the hypocrisy of telling And and endorsing mayors who told police to stand down around the nation while cities were laid siege to by violent, violent, not protesters, looters and thugs, the same way that there were were looters and thugs in the Capitol. That's what they are. You are what you do. And that's what we're describing. And the uh, disparate response from the Chuck Schumers of the world to looting and thuggery. Uh, obviously, don't endorse the suggestion that what the Trumpsters, as she called them, did was appropriate, was not. I don't endorse going to Nancy Pelosi's home or Chuck Schumer's home the way that thugs went to Josh Hawley's home or Tucker Carlson's home or the homes of other Republican politicians. No. That's what Antifa does. It's not what peaceful, pluralist Americans do. So no. No violence. But, um, you understand when, uh, the hypocrisy is papered over by, the press corps, and people are marginalized by these poli- these hypocritical politicians, you're going to generate strong reaction. Until you get some intellectual consistency and the equal application of certain standards of decorum in a free society, you're going to have these unfortunate responses, aren't you?
0: This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. To pro pro-impeachment Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass. When you're standing at the edge of a cliff, moving forward is not necessarily the most judicious step. might be something to consider because this moment is about so much more than President Trump. And while you're running interference for Democrat socialists, you're not taking up the cause for Trump supporters who are being targeted by the left, are you? And let me give you an example of what I mean. Representative Ro Khanna from California on CNN yesterday.
1: The reality is there is still a large base of Donald Trump supporters in these constituencies who believe him. And we have to be candid about that, that uh, this country is divided. And the question is, how are we going to have a peaceful transition of power and then convince a chunk of that base that it's time to heal this country?
2: Mm-hmm. Convince. Well, that's a euphemistic word, a much more euphemistic than the language being used by more candid leftists like Eugene Robinson at The Washington Post.
4: There are millions of Americans, almost all white, almost all Republicans, who somehow need to be deprogrammed. It's as if they, 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 they are members of a Trumpist cult and we have to be deprogrammed. Do you have any idea how we... <laughs> so how we start that process, even much less complete it?
2: Gene Robinson also had this characterization of Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz.
4: The difference between the white citizens' councils and the Klan. You know, back in the okay. days of, of Jim Crow and the the you know, Klan was lower income, the white citizens' councils were um, were the, the Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's of their day.
2: The white citizens' councils were the Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's of their day. The White Citizens Councils, you'll recall, were pro-segregationists, anti-Brown v. Board of Education, educational integration. And Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are 21st century segregationists. How exactly? Because they objected to the electoral certification on January 6th. Benny Thompson, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the House, suggesting that Cruz and Hawley could be or should be put on the no-fly list. Obviously, there's petitions circulating for them to be disbarred, which was mentioned yesterday. So uh, again, if you think this is all just about taking uh, one final shot at President Trump, as Dan Henninger told us, using Trump to unite the Democrats and divide the Republicans for as long as possible, certainly that's one benefit for the left. But the real benefit, particularly with Republicans folding in— to provide aid and comfort, is the cover it gives for the onslaught against rank-and-file Trump supporters throughout the land, and you think that's the way forward for the Republican Party. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Eddie Scari. He is a commentary writer for WashingtonExaminer.com. He's also the author of the book, *Privilege Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Well, there's a timely book. Eddie, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
10: Happy to be with you. Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year. And so um, your assessment of uh, sort of the topic we were tackling, which is this idea that uh, Liz Cheney and and some House and Senate Republicans have that uh, impeaching and perhaps even convicting President Trump while he's uh, on a golf course or at Mar-a-Lago is the way forward for the Republican Party.
10: I think you said it perfectly. This doesn't end with another round of impeachment. They are using this. and I say they, I mean the left in general, um, which includes the media, but it's obviously the Democrats in Congress. They're using what happened last week, and they're going to use it for power grabs for probably the next 15 years, if not more than that. Every little thing, every time a Republican opens their mouth, this is going to be what Democrats, they say, no, shut up. You started a riot on the Hill. Uh, You don't get to talk anymore. In fact, you should probably go ahead and resign. Anytime a Republican says anything about maybe we should make some adjustments to the next election to make sure that everything is a little bit more a little bit more tidy. Nope, shut up. You started a riot over this exact same thing. That's what this is about. And I think any any Republican who thinks, okay, if we just do the impeachment and get rid of Trump, that our hands are clean. We can wipe our hands. clean. No, 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 no. (laughs) If you think running away from Trump, running away from his supporters is the way forward, fine. You can lose every election from here on out because that's exactly what will happen. There is no way to wipe your hands clean of anything. And I don't think you have to wipe your hands clean of anything. Obviously, that's what happened last week is wrong. The people involved should be prosecuted. I do think that the president is, bears blame for a lot of it. But that is not to say that you distance yourself from ever having supported anything Trump ever did or said, the issues he raised the problems that we have in our country that he confronted. Those are all things that you can still say, yeah, I don't like what happened last week. I completely disapprove of it, condemn it. And yet, I still stand by everything I said right up until that point, and I don't apologize for any of it. That's the only way to do this. But for some reason, I think in their head, because Republicans always fall for this trap, they say, if we give Democrats what they want this one time, we can finally move forward and get along. No, that's not going to happen. It never happened before, and it won't happen now.
2: Um, some Another point, and uh, this was uh, brought up brilliantly by William Vigelli, because that's all he does is offer brilliance, a piece over at City Journal about whataboutism. And we've addressed this here, but I want to get your take. This, this is a, a very uh, nuanced way of trying to eliminate any call of attention to the left's hypocrisy to uh, suggest that um, recalling the pronouncements that were made in the wake of the writing that occurred last summer into the fall into the present actually not being covered but into the present with antifa is to engage in whataboutism and you're trying to uh, shift the standard or misdirect away from the issue at bar which is what happened on january 6th Uh, so turnabout is never fair play and this is something where conservatives have to stand up and say as well no turnabout is not fair play if i said because jenny durkin defended autonomous zones in the middle of her city i would defend an autonomous zone in the middle of chicago i wouldn't that would be turnabout not being fair play turnabout is fair play when you say i condemned violence under the rubric of politics last summer in seattle and portland and chicago and new york and boston and so on and so forth and now i'm condemning violence at the Capitol, too. And I'm pointing out that you only seem to be distressed by political violence if it's coming from, at least in part, Trump supporters, not if it's coming from Black Lives Matter or Antifa, which you characterize as just an idea. That's not what whataboutism. That's standard setting.
10: Right, I think whataboutism is really the dumbest term to have ever come up in politics uh, within the last <laughs> five years, other than the name Kamala. But I think a lot of conservatives have actually bought into that because I'll I'll run into that same yes I'll, I'll talk with them and, and and they will they will say well now you're just engaging in whataboutism you know it was usually something if I spoke in favor of Trump or defended Trump on something they said well no and they were they were anti-Trump Republicans maybe they would they would say well that's whataboutism well no I'm sorry I do get to point back at your own record I do get to look at what other people did and said before they decided to take up a, a particular stance and I mean the New York Times was calling it whataboutism too because I immediately I, I obviously saw what happened last week I said that's wrong and yet I'm watching MSNBC and CNN suddenly care that riots and mobs are, are not a good look for this country meanwhile all last summer they had nothing but nice things to say about the Black Lives Matter rioting that happened for months and months it continues to happen and they say nothing about it other than well it's mostly peaceful but to to, to point it out at all is well that's whataboutism well okay okay, well, no, but what about it? Why can't I say that was a problem for you? I'm saying it's a problem now, just like you were reading there. I say this is a problem, but you never had anything to say about that. So yeah, it's what about it, but that's not a problem. That's perfectly fair.
2: Um, Interesting piece in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, not something you get to say very often, about how big tech impeached President Trump. You know, one of the things in a purge is make sure you identify who is to blame before people decide that maybe you're to blame. And, and and social media was getting some heat for from the left for what they allowed to be communicated in advance of January 6th as people were looking online at what was being communicated as the rioting was occurring on that day, saying Facebook and Twitter bear some responsibility. Well, no, no, this is all on the president of the United States. Uh, pay no attention to us. You, you need to focus over here. And I wonder how much of the deplatforming of Trump in the uh, hours right after the uh, violence had occurred on January 6th, gave cover for Democrats and encouragement for some weak-kneed Republicans to move forward with this impeachment gambit on the way out the door.
10: Oh, sure. I believe that, yes, the whole um, deplatforming, trying to iso- completely isolate the president is, of course, and, and this is just yet one more step in that direction. But again, I think if, if any Republican um, in Congress believes that they can wipe their hands clean by going along with another impeachment, I'm going to tell you, they're falling for the trap that they always do. Now, Democrats in the media will set the terms going forward for them. They will be sure to remind, you know what? you were complicit in everything with trump before that's what they love to say but they will say that for the next again probably 10 15 years it's never going to go away so the impeachment is worthless i mean i i wrote just a couple days ago that I thought it was fine for Trump to go ahead and resign, resign, ask Mike Pence for a preemptive pardon, and then go do something else. Like, but if you're not going to do that, I don't see the point of an impeachment when you, you're going to have, what, two days for a trial? I mean, and then a trial after he's out of office, it's just all a little bit ridiculous. I think people are going to wonder, the, the public voters are going to look at that and say, he's gone. What are you doing?
2: Eddie Scari, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, author of Privileged Victims, How America's Cultural F- Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Thanks for joining us again, Eddie. Appreciate it.
10: Thanks so much.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opining something that uh, we've known for some time, but clearly bears repeating in the direction of our nation's governors, apparently. The risk of severe illness increases with age, which is why the administration, the Trump administration, was right to urge states to administer the vaccine to anyone 65 and older. By one estimate, a 70-year-old is about four times more likely to die than a 60-year-old and seven times more likely than a 50-year-old. Age is also a bigger risk factor than underlying health conditions like diabetes. There's no reason a 25-year-old teacher or grocery worker should get a shot before a 65-year-old. The development of COVID vaccines in record times attributes private innovation and political will that cut through bureaucracy. The vaccine distribution has been an example of too much political interference. The argument being disseminate the vaccines based on age, not based on profession or other political calculations like equity and arguments about historic injustices and so forth. What they're describing isn't happening is one of the reasons why 27 million doses of the vaccine have been distributed, 9 million have been deployed. Uh, For more on this and a reaction to uh, these realities around the country, like uh, the one in Oregon, where teachers are being prioritized regardless of age, being prioritized, prioritized over seniors, pleased to be joined by Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and an Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
1: Happy to be here.
2: Uh, what about that? Uh, let's do this by age and chop-chop.
13: Well, I wrote an article about this in uh, the magazine City Journal on Monday, bringing this exact thing. You know, The federal government did a fabulous job of facilitating the development of new COVID vaccines in record time, but unfortunately, the state governments have done a really poor job of getting that available supply into people's arms, and the problem has been they've been too focused on trying to micromanage everything, and they've got a bunch of restrictive rules over who can be vaccinated, and they've just been administratively incompetent so that we have these millions of doses sitting in the freezer and not being administered
7: to people.
2: They've also, from some of the reporting and commentary I've read, including from you, uh, the the problem of taking a Politburo-style approach centralizing it at the state level rather than leaning on the private sector health infrastructure you have with hospitals and pharmacies, not to mention at the local government level where you have county plans that have been crafted and tested in advance of something like this that in states like new york have been and run per the governor
13: right and in, in new york uh, the, the county executives around the state are, are up in arms because every year they are required to have mass vaccination plans and they 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 practice them and they they publish them and now the governor and his minions have decided that that's no good they know better so they circumvented all of those, and and they're not giving out the shot. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of people saying, like me, as I wrote on Monday, saying, why don't we just rely on the facilities we have, the, the facilities we use every year to give influenza vaccines? You know, every year about half the population gets a flu shot. Why don't we use those same things, doctors' offices? Uh, Other medical facilities, those account for about half of the influenza vaccines. And then about a third are given in pharmacies and supermarkets and grocery stores. uh, And uh, and about 15 percent are given in the workplace. But, you know, a lot of the state governments want to centralize it in their facilities. And perhaps even worse, the incoming Biden administration is talking about they're going to start – some new federal vaccine facilities. And yeah. if this, this is going to happen overnight. Uh, know, and it, it is going to happen overnight. So yeah, the, to the, 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 buy-
2: other, the other thing about this, the, the infrastructure you're talking about, it, it just seems to be such just a common sense thing. So my doctor's office, my pharmacist, these are people I also have a trust relationship with more than telling me to go to Soldier Field to get it vaccinated. So it also helps you get over any hurdles you have in terms of questions about the safety or other questions you have about the vaccine. Well, well, my you know my doctor for 30 years is telling me I should do this and, and I can get in and see him or my pharmacist is telling me I can do this and I, and I know my pharmacist. So it just seems like the, the, that's exactly the process you would want is people that have trust relationships communicating information about this.
13: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, there will be some issues vis-a-vis the the Pfizer vaccine because it requires this ultra-cold storage, so that may be limited to certain specialized things like a a big chain like a CVS or a, a Walmart could maybe accommodate them or certainly hospitals. But the Moderna vaccine doesn't require that ultra low uh, temperature, so it just requires regular freezers. So doctors' offices and and other places can easily accommodate that. Plus, we're going to likely have some more vaccines coming online in the next few months. The AstraZeneca vaccine, possibly the Johnson Johnson vaccine. So you know, we the the even the two existing makers, Moderna and Pfizer, have uh, said they're going to have. 200 million doses in the first quarter of the year that's enough so that we can relax the rules set an age requirement the government finally came to its senses and said 65. i argue you could you know as supply gets bigger you can possibly go even lower you go down to 45 because only two percent of the covid deaths are in below age 45. so we really ought to be thinking about vaccinating everyone above 45 eventually
2: there was this case out of Miami where a doctor there allegedly uh, uh, died after, you know, uh, as a result of the vaccine. It certainly, he he died after receiving the vaccine. Shortly thereafter, that case is under investigation. But um, your, your oh, that's point one, is well taken.
13: nine million doses. Uh, you know, no, I understand.
2: Million. I understand. Your point is well taken, but I just wanted to raise that 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 issue. Um, you know, to, to to talk about cases the same way, frankly, we talk about uh, the anomalous COVID case and put that in perspective. But
13: I don't want to ignore it. Right. No, no, I don't ignore it. But the fact that it's one of nine million uh, makes you think that it, it could be completely coincidental that the, yeah. I, I, you really have to investigate the circumstances
2: uh, with respect to um, those who are doing it right. So, uh, for example, the Dakotas in both South and North Dakota, they have distributed 70% plus of the vaccine doses that they received. Uh, are the Dakotas doing what you're suggesting, where the other states that are under a third distributed or le- a third or less distributed are not?
13: Well, I can Is it you, that simple? Yes. Yeah, well, the Dakotas and West Virginia, and I can tell you the West Virginia governor uh, has come out and made very clear that what he and and his state government set up was to rely on their pharmacies and they set up an advanced utilization of the National Guard. Uh, You know, so I'm not against the government if if it's going to do it correctly, but, you know, it, it should have been obvious to every state in the country, not just to West Virginia, that a vaccine is coming. We've been talking about vaccines for six, seven months already, and to set the mechanisms up. Uh, so, West Virginia set those mechanisms up, it's relying on the private entities that we normally rely on, and that's what we should do. But you can't now have governments scramble and say we're going to set up mass vaccination facilities uh, when we didn't have them set up before. If they haven't done it, they should step aside and let the private entities that routinely do this take carry the ball forward.
2: Dr. Joel Zinberg, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, associate clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Thank you for joining us again. Appreciate it.
13: My
5: pleasure.
0: Exposing. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. As uh, someone who uh, routinely defends, and has to, the use of ridicule in political discourse, including name-calling, nicknaming in a derogatory way, politicians. Because, in my view, that ridicule reminds both the target as well as the listener that our elected representatives in the West are our temporary representatives. They are not our betters. And it's good that both parties, both the constituent and the official, be reminded of that. As somebody who believes that, I so enjoyed this uh, piece at com by Jack Riley, who's an artist and cartoonist living in my hometown of Chicago. On the uh, death of political cartooning and why it matters, I share his lament, and I think it's important, particularly for a practitioner in the space to uh, who provides a great historical perspective on political cartoons throughout the uh, uh, battles for liberty in the West over the last several hundred years, uh, important in this time, perhaps more than most, to have this conversation. So we're pleased to be joined by Jack Riley. Jack, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
8: Pleasure to be here, Dan. Thank you.
2: Um, I uh, note a tweet recently from Elon Musk that I think uh, is a good launching uh, pad for this conversation. His tweet simply said, "Legalize comedy!" Exclamation point. Uh, and that, and it 's almost sort of the uh the elegance of a good political cartoon uh, uh brevity that has big meaning about where we are as a culture
8: yeah that 's great uh because it really is the distillation of the problem um you know comedy is under attack in all its forms uh you know particularly in political cartooning it 's always to a degree been under attack. Uh, and, you know, you'd think these uh, battles were won in the West, you know, you thought we were done with this kind of stuff and we were always going to be free to speak our minds and to be able to give forth, uh, sometimes even controversial opinions. But, you know, now you see the legacy media companies, uh, barely holding on and coming under the sway of, you know, social media, mobs, censorship, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's a dangerous time now to, to dabble in comedy and to dabble in satire. And, uh, it makes it exciting, but it also makes it, uh, you know, a travesty for the art form.
2: Well, and and you start your piece by reminding us of the Charlie Hebdo massacre in France and how terrible that was because of a political cartoon that uh, parodied the Prophet Muhammad and angered uh, Islamists in Europe, uh, well, the world over, but particularly in Europe, and uh you know you would think it's almost like sort of the the terrorists in 9/11 if we change the way we live then the terrorists win remember that mantra uh and so the pushback in the wake of that massacre at the headquarters of Charlie Hebdo was uh w- w- was swift but it doesn't seem like it was sustained
8: exactly uh it's really sad you know how quickly that sentiment the je suis charlie you know we are charlie disappeared from the public consciousness, because if you remember uh, in the wake of that massacre, you had basically every Western world leader, uh, you know, locking arms and, and striding defiantly, uh, defiantly down the roads of Paris and saying, you know, we stand for free speech, we stand for the First Amendment. But now there's things that, you know, will get you immediately not only fired, but but canceled and, and, and cast off, you know, forever. Uh, if you even broach some of these topics and, you know, we all know what they are, they're there the uh, trans uh, commentary, there's race commentary, there's, there's these hot-button issues that, you know, the more you push these kind of things underground, the more they'll mutate and get ugly. And we just can't have that. We have to keep these conversations that are far from settled uh, in the public dialogue, in the public consciousness, because the worst thing you can do is turn something into a taboo. Uh, the minute you start dealing in taboos and you start saying, you know, you can't say that, it just makes people want to say it. It just makes people want to see it. It, it makes people want to let some air out of the balloon. And, you know, uh, it's a shame that you don't see uh, that kind of stuff on TV anymore in our newspapers. I mean, imagine Archie Bunker on television in the year 2021. I mean, people's heads would explode. It's, it's a shame.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, right, all in the family. Forget all in the family. I wonder how long you'll have uh, a Babylon Bee uh, allowed on Facebook or the social media platforms or even The Onion. Um, when we come back with Jack Riley, uh, I want to uh, talk uh, a little bit more about uh, some great examples from history that are relevant today in terms of the importance of the political cartoon, the importance of the social commentating artist. And uh, uh, the roles they played in in in, uh, particularly important times in our country's history, perhaps starting with Thomas Nast during the Civil War, Jack Riley, artist and cartoonist living in Chicago. We'll be right back with more.
0: Is the Dan Proft
2: show Welcome back to the show. We're pleased to be talking to Jack Riley who is an artist and cartoonist living in Chicago. We're talking about uh, his most excellent piece at Quillette.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft. I can't parlor it out, but I'll tweet it out uh, about uh, political cartooning, the death of political cartooning and why it matters. The walkthrough history you gave in this piece was just so poignant, Jack. And um, I want to pick up on somebody that's regarded as perhaps the best part- political cartoonist of all time. And you referenced that, and that's Thomas Nass during the Civil War. And, um, and the role that he played just to, to provide a real world, a real tangible example of um, why such artistry should be paid much deference, why that expression should be paid much deference.
8: Yeah, that you hit the nail on the head. Thomas Nass, you know, he came about, he was a young German immigrant came about in the 1860s, burst onto the scene as a political cartoonist, had such an outside cultural impact for someone plying his trade. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. And he started doing these very pro-union pieces, very arresting pieces for Harper's Weekly. And, you know, this was in a time of mass newspaper readership. You know, was the best way to get ideas and opinions across was in the pages of the newspaper. And his pieces were so well done. The artistry was so amazing that Abraham Lincoln himself even called Thomas our best recruiting agent. So it was pretty unbelievable, and he did a just a jaw-dropping cartoon called the Compromise with the South. At the time, the Democrats were pushing for peace with the South, with the Slaving South. I was right in the lead up to the 1864 election, and uh, you know, it, I won't go into the details of the piece, but it, it was so well done that a lot of people think it actually pushed the tip over in, in Lincoln's favor. And then he went on after that to really shape events in New York. He went after Tammany Hall, corruption there, and ended up getting the ringleader of Tammany Hall thrown in jail, the Democratic machine. He even, you know, popularized the use of the elephant for the Republicans, the use of the donkey for the Democrats, and even, you know, came up with a modern version of Santa Claus that we all you know, know and love, that kind of Coca-Cola Santa Claus. So, I mean, here was a guy who through his talent was able to shape culture and shape world events it's pretty extraordinary
2: well right and and so and today i mean you have people that uh, would enjoy the new yorker cartoon caption contest routinely like myself but so many in elite circles that consume that periodical that are going right along with the elimination of dissent in all its forms including the political cartoon which by, by definition is supposed to be Rebellious is supposed to challenge authority, something that uh, the D.C. press corps and the press corps generally once upon a time was supposed to do. I evoke uh, Finley Peter Dunn, a Chicago journalist who just said, right, the purpose of journalism is to afflict the comfortable and, can, and comfort the afflicted. That doesn't seem to be the disposition of uh, so much of elite society in America today.
8: No, you're exactly right. You know, political cartoons at their best can really be like a poke in the eye to our elected officials. And, you know, they can have staying power. You know, Herb Block, was the famous cartoonist from The Washington Post, uh, you know, he got under Richard Nixon's skin so well that Nixon was even heard to rage. You know, I, I have to get rid of this Herb Block image. You know? and <laughs> Great would, Nixon impersonation, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but he would, he would shave every day religiously because, you know, Herb Block always – kind of portrayed him as this crook, you know, with a unkempt, you know, five o'clock shadow and, and Richard Nixon was like, I can't have this. I can't have this be the portrayal of me. And you know, so you see these legacy media empires, especially the New Yorker, it's been sad to see, you know, they they mostly do woke doodles now is kind of yeah. how I describe them. They really just stay in that wheelhouse. They they never challenge their readers anymore. And it's because I think if they did, they'd they'd have an uprising in their in their own newsroom amongst their own ranks. And that's very, very dangerous. You know, you have to tell these these employees and these kids, hey, this is uh, we're a press empire. You know, this is the First Amendment. You if you don't want to work here, there's the door. And we need to see more leadership in, in that regard. Well,
2: and also, too, I, it seems to me a, a debate about the standards that are being set needs to be had so that apparently some people who don't understand the implications of the new standards perhaps come to understand them. And I, I go to uh, Twitter's pronouncement in defense of their banning of, of Trump from uh, its platform. And, and this, is, this is separate and distinct from Trump. It doesn't matter what you think about Trump. They said that Trump's tweets – are being interpreted by some, the way they're being interpreted by some is a threat to public safety. So now free expression has to meet the standard of being interpreted just so by the reader or the consumer. That is an impossible standard to apply and still defend free speech the way that uh, peaceful pluralists, much less our founders, envisioned it. If 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 it's up to the uh, Interpretation, reasonable or unreasonable, of everybody who consumes it, who can abide that standard?
8: It's a difficult needle to thread. But, you know, in terms of Trump, there is a strong argument to be made that he should be kicked off Twitter. Um, because although I am a, a vehement First Amendment uh, protector, like you know, this you, First Amendment protects free speech, but it doesn't protect you from yelling fire in a crowded theater. And, yes. you know, his his tweets lately, you know, causing this uprise and causing this upheaval in the Capitol where, you know, people were killed. Uh, it was an attack on our democracy um, in order to uh, give him that platform to continue to foment rebellion, open rebellion against democracy. You know, this is a difficult question. I, I don't think we can just blanketly say it's a travesty that he's kicked off Twitter. I know I'm resting easier at night. Uh, knowing that he doesn't have that at his bedside table.
2: Well, we we disagree on that, and that's fine. But, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't seditious when Pelosi tweeted out in 2017 that the 2016 election had been hijacked um, and uh, wh- whether or not uh, – uh, you know, Trump uh, went beyond that to sort of some sort of incitement that was the proximate cause of the violence that occurred in the Capitol. Uh, we can have that debate, and I understand people disagree. But I, I'm, I'm more so setting aside even uh, what he – the substance of his content and the standard that Twitter put forward. The interpretation of the consumer is what it triggers legitimate speech or not. The, the, that standard doesn't provide much room for parody or comedy or even commentary.
8: 100 percent with you there um they're all over the map in terms of enforcing these standards and they only do it when there's enough social media pushback frankly i mean so trump's off twitter Uh, i would argue that's a good thing but uh people bring up the good point what about the chinese communist party what about the ayatollahs in iran you know they're still enjoying their twitter feeds, and they certainly have um have done much worse things on there than than most so uh Having clear rules of the road and enforcing those rules across the board, not just what's politically convenient for you, is something that they need to grapple with. And this is going to be an ongoing fight and ongoing conversation. And it's not easy. But um, but right now we're headed in the wrong direction. That's that's for sure.
2: He is Jack Riley. He's an artist and cartoonist living in Chicago. Check out his speech, which I'll tweet out. Uh, the death of political cartooning and why it matters, quillette.com. Jack, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: Pleasure, Dan. Thank you.
2: Take care.
5: When there is always something there to remind me. Always something there to remind me. I was
0: Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. Uh, We conclude with um, a uh, rant from AOC, the leader of the Socialist Spice Girls. They've added to their ranks in the past election, even uh, with Republicans picking up seats. AOC, uh, it's just the context here, calling for a commission on media literacy. AOC calling for a commission on literacy is like Chris Christie calling for a commission on physical fitness and diet. But okay, sure. Uh, What you're about to hear, though, is uh, useful, given that uh, she has such an outsized voice in the Democrat socialist ranks, because it's uh, good to remember this is who some Republicans are throwing in with today.
9: Part of it when you caged kids, you were a part of it when you repealed title dozen number of crimes that he committed. You were a part of it when you excuse the law breaking. You were a part of it. You were a part of it. You were a part of it. Those five people's blood is on your hands. What are you going to do? And they think that resigning is going to clean that blood off their hands. It is always on them. They are forever stained with the deaths of five people, especially when they did not invoke the 25th amendment to remove this president when they had the power to do so. Cowards, cowards. Couldn't even stand up in the memory of these officers that they pretend to care about, that they pretend to care about. I don't wanna hear or see the Republican party talk about blue lives ever again. This was never about safety for them. It was always a slogan. Because if they actually cared about rule of law, they would speak up when people break the law.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps the only thing more comical than AFC talking about uh, literacy in any respect is her talking about uh, police officers and the rule of law. That's where it's at. And you hear the moral indignation and you feel the moral superiority, however misplaced it is. This is somebody who wants to defund the police in every form And law enforcement in every form it takes in this country, local, state, federal, right? Open borders, defund ICE, children in cages. But this is uh, who you think is going to provide quarter if you uh, do their bidding with respect to President Trump in the waning days of his presidency, who you want to unify with per the hackneyed bromides being bandied about, right? Right. Somebody lecturing you about uh, impeachment or the 25th Amendment who proposed that Trump be impeached because of tax cuts. <laughs> tax cuts, of course, passed by Congress, signed into law by President Trump, but I digress. How unserious our time is. And the fact that anyone believes that someone like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is in any position to lecture the country about the rule of law, about courage about law enforcement officers is just such a testament to how upside down we are and how difficult the path forward is going to be. So stay informed so you can stay courageous in the face of ignoramuses like AOC, and we can stay free. Seems to be very much in doubt these days. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.